programming languages are dynamically typed or statically typed. In a dynamically typed language, the programmer does not need to declare if a variable is an integer, a string, or another type. In a statically typed language, the developer must declare the type of the variable up front so that the compiler can take advantage of that information. Dynamically typed languages give the programmer flexibility and fast iteration speed. But these languages also introduce the possibility of errors that can be avoided by performing type checking. This is one of the reasons why TypeScript has risen in popularity, giving developers the option to add types to their JavaScript variables. Sorbet is a type checker for Ruby. Sorbet allows for gradual typing of Ruby programs, which helps engineers avoid errors that might otherwise be caused by the dynamic type system. Dmitry Petroshko is an engineer at Stripe who helped build Sorbet. He has significant experience in compilers, having worked on Scala before his time at Stripe. Dmitry joins the show to discuss his work on Sorbet and the motivation for adding type checking to Ruby. We are in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, and a group of developers has created a hackathon called CodeVid19, which is a pandemic hackathon. The goal is to create solutions that help people manage and survive during the COVID-19 pandemic, and they're using the hackathon platform that I built called Find Collabs. So if you're interested in hacking on ideas related to COVID-19, you can go to codevid19.com, or you can go to findcollabs.com and enter into the hackathon there. There are projects that are looking for volunteers, and also there are volunteers looking for projects. Dmitry Petroshko, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. Pleasure to meet you. I want to talk to you today about Sorbet, which is a system for gradual typing in Ruby. But let's first talk about the usage of Ruby at Stripe, where you work. Why is Stripe mostly built around Ruby? So the reasons are arguably mostly historical. At the time when Stripe was getting started, Ruby was a language that was commonly used by startups in the area to get to the market the fastest which was powered by the fact that Ruby is a very expressive language, which allows faster creation towards a prototype. And it mostly served us well since, and thus we didn't really have a good reason to replace it, since built a lot of tooling that makes Ruby work better for us, and we've been pretty, pretty happy with it. And you use Ruby, but you don't use Rails. Why not? That's correct. Early Stripe had envisioned some use cases that Rails didn't support well, such as maintaining persistent connections to clients pretty much forever. It didn't end up being used at Stripe of today much. The stack that Stripe used used Sinatra and some custom frameworks rather than Rails. Another benefit that we get by not using Rails is that our company values explicitness. And this is mostly driven by the fact that due to the business that Stripe has, the code that we write frequently moves money. And thus, having explicitness in what happens there and good understanding is of big value at Stripe. The explicitness, I think that carries forth well into a subject which is related to being explicit, type checking. Can you explain what type checking means? Yeah. So let's say you're where to write a program. As you're writing the program, 
if the language is built in a way that there are some invariants that can be verified even before you go to production, it will, can allow you a faster iteration cycle. Such as, for example, if you could know that as you're using some method or some functionality, this method is expected to take a number as an argument and return a string. So then you can verify whether you're actually give, using this method the way it's supposed to be used in a way that the thing that you're passing it as an argument is actually a number, and the way you're using the result is used as if it was a string. So the type checking is the process in which those kind of invariants are checked about your program. And most commonly, those kinds of invariants are checked for all possible evaluations of your program so that you don't even necessarily need to run the test or have production traffic to verify those invariants. Does it make sense? It does. Ruby is an untyped language. So when you add some type checking to an untyped language, what benefits do you get? Most of the benefits uh, that you get can be separated into pieces. One of them are entirely technical in that there are some kinds of errors that can be entirely prevented, such as referring to a class with a typo in the class name. You can no longer mistype the word integer as stripe, for example, or using the result of a method in the way that's known to be safe. Those are technical reasons why I would like to have a type system, but there are also people reasons for why type system can be beneficial in that now you have stronger and spelled out intentional agreements about what does this method do. For example, you can say that this method takes some kind of argument, such as it takes a user and this user is expected to be a string that represents the ID of the user object. Whereas if you didn't have a type for it, the name user could have been treated two ways, where one way would be the user ID, another is the actual database user object. So it allows teams and allows people to have explicit spelled out contracts, which is of huge help when you have a big engineering team. And Sorbet, which we're going to get to shortly, is an optional typing system or a gradual typing system. So if people are using Sorbet, it does not force them to use types. Why is that? Why not force people to make their code entirely be typed? That's a great question, John. So we had to do this from the start because we were looking to type a pre-existing huge code base that Stripe had that did not have types yet. So our type checker had to be able to work in the world where substantial pieces of the code base and initially even the majority of the code base is not typed. And thus, it was a necessity for adoption path. That said, in the today world, we also believe that this is of value in that sometimes some users prefer to not yet type their code. In many cases, this is because they don't know yet what they want this code to do. They're still very early in their prototype, and they don't want the rigidness imposed by types. They want more flexibility. They want to have less boundaries so that they're easier to break because they're so far still figuring out what they're doing. And thus, currently at Stripe, depending on how mature is your project, different people would use different amount of typedness. Some of them will go to extreme typedness for areas that are critical and are used in production. Some of them will start with early prototypes where they may or may not use survey at all. So... Can you tell me about the initial process for creating Sorbet? Was there a certain point you reached where there were too many errors being thrown in the unchecked Ruby language that 
created the impetus for wanting to have some type checking? So it were, there were multiple reasons that brought to this project being funded. The team who's, who I'm currently a pillar tech lead for at the time had a different pillar tech lead, Paul Tarjan, saw a bunch of questions coming in such as, our users at Stripe were asking to provide them better ability to describe the intentions of the code so that the users of the library and authors of the library can better communicate with each other on how you're expected to use the library and what's the valid use of the library. They were mostly asking about this in terms of asking for documentation, though. At the same time, we're seeing similar problems in production, where some code may not be as well tested as we wanted at all combinations of potential behaviors, like testing all the branches of a complex method could be pretty hard, in particular, correctly testing error handling. And both of those asks, we believe, could have been achieved by a type system. Additionally, as we were expecting from experience of other companies and Stripe itself, our code base to continue growing at least quadratically, we believe that increasingly engineers will be having a hard time having an understanding of Stripe as whole, where we believe we'll need to introduce natural boundaries, natural terms for them to think in so that they can stay productive. And not only introduce the terms, but also tools that reason in such terms, such as IDEs, like enabling things like auto-completions, enabling things like jump to definition, enabling things like find all references. And thus building survey was a project that was moving towards this grand vision of improving, improving productivity at Stripe and making the Stripe use of Ruby sustainable in a humongous code base that we're, we've, started, we've been growing towards. So if I think about TypeScript, that's a typed dialect of JavaScript that people might be familiar with, when you compile a TypeScript file, or perhaps maybe interpretation is the word you might want to use, you, you change a TypeScript file to a JavaScript file before it's actually ready to run. How does it compare to the model for Sorbet? Is, is it a different file format that gets converted into Ruby files? That's a great question. In Sorbet's case, we chose a slightly different path than the one that TypeScript chose. Sorbet files are Ruby files. We do not use a different syntax. We do not use a different file extension. And Sorbet files are run with the normal Ruby runtime, with the normal Ruby interpreter. We modify some behaviors and introduce some methods in the superclasses, such as sig, the method that's used to specify the type signatures. And Ruby VM is so expressive that we didn't need to build a custom runtime to power things like this. So we've been able to benefit from the Ruby VM without needing to reinvent things like ID support initially, where standard ID support worked with, with Survey. And we didn't need to reinvent the runtime. And we didn't need to reinvent the integration with, let's say, GitHub. So all existing tools that work with normal Ruby also work with type Ruby. How does Sorbet run? So when I have one of these Ruby files where I've added typing to it, is my code getting transformed on the fly? Or is it, do I run some command line function to do the necessary type checking? How does the Sorbet analyzer actually work? So Sorbet has two components. Uh, one of them does the former that you're describing, another one does the latter. So to dive deeper, one of them allows you to run a 
initially command line command that will take all of Stripe's code base and spit out errors where you would use some, where we believe you were using methods that either don't, aren't guaranteed to exist or referring to things that are not guaranteed to exist or using the methods in a wrong way. This is what we call static type checking in that it allows you to statically verify that code base doesn't have some classes of errors. And if the type checker is happy with this, you have much higher guarantee that those kinds of errors will not be happening. And for some of them, that's 100%. This also enables faster iteration time because this is some, something that's since we've integrated in the IDE and it now has sub 500 milliseconds response time on our humongous code base. The second component though, is the runtime component where we're verifying that the environments, the static type system was promised by a user actually hold in runtime. We need to have this for two reasons. First of all, the untapped code still exists, and thus untapped code can violate those promises and thus lead to operations that we believe shouldn't be possible in runtime. And thus, it now allows us to introduce invariance, both from correctness perspective, which then translates into availability and security perspective, and again, in a company that moves money, both of those are very important. Before you started working on Sorbet, there were other Ruby type checking systems. Why did you need, need to create a new one? So before we've kicked off the project to implement our own, for around three or four months, members of the team, Paul Tarjan and Nelson Nelhatch, have been evaluating other type systems, notably RDL by Jeff Foster from, at the time, University of Maryland, who's now working at Tufts and typed Ruby from Charlie Summerwell, who worked at GitHub. We've evaluated how would they work on the Stripe code base, and unfortunately, we learned that they will require substantial modifications in order to work well on our code base. Most commonly, the reason being the size. To the best of our knowledge, our code base is one of the th three biggest code bases, if not the biggest in the world. And thus, getting those projects to work fast enough on our code base seemed like they will require substantial redesign. And thus, rather than trying to modify them, we started on our own experiment to see how far we'll be able to get in designing this from first principles. And we've got pretty far in under two month period. And this was our experiment that had been declared a success. And from there, we ended up implementing our own type checking. Additionally, since then, we've built good relationship with the people who are standing behind both of these type checkers and other type checkers, notably Steep, the type checking coming from Sotaro Matsumoto, who's from Japan. And all of us are members of a working group on Ruby three types. We work together with Ruby Core a team and, and Mats, the benevolent dictator of Ruby, to bring types into Ruby three. One of your colleagues worked on HHVM and Hack at Facebook, and I believe that was a, a project to create types on top of PHP. How do the motivations for Stripe building Sorbet compare to the motivations that Facebook had when they were building Hack? That's a great question. Indeed, Paul Tarjan, who was Pillar Tech lead of the team at the time and the biggest sponsor of the project, was believing that majority of the problems that our team was looking to address based on experience of our users could be helped by a tech checker. And in Ripto's hack, he was right. 
And so he was leaning towards this direction because Hack was a project that addressed similar needs at Facebook. That said, the Hack is built very differently from Sorbet. It's tried mostly for reasons of past dependency. At Facebook, Hack followed HHVM. By the time Hack was built, Facebook already had a runtime that they've built before this to address performance concerns. And Hack was built after it. Whereas at Stripe, we weren't looking to address performance concerns. Rather, we were looking to address productivity and correctness concerns. And thus, Sorbet is much closely integrated with Ruby in that we didn't see a value of building a runtime because we didn't have problems that would be solved by building a runtime. Makes sense. Let's say I'm a developer at Stripe. I've been writing Ruby code for many years, and then I get told, okay, we've got this Sorbet thing. Start using it. How is my experience of writing code going to change once I have Sorbet? Awesome question. We see a lot of engineers who join Stripe from other companies where they wrote Ruby, and most notably GitHub, Shopify. And we see some of the techniques that they used to be using are the ones that Sorbet doesn't necessarily like in that it cannot verify that they're safe. Most commonly, this means that people have to get to learn the way how Stripe does those things, which may be slightly more verbose, but then they work better without tooling. For example, it's pretty common in Ruby to meta-program classes and methods into existence, whereas at Stripe, it means that you cannot describe types for them. And thus, a lot of our tooling will not work well with them in that it won't be able to, for example, find the definition of this method or find all usages of this method. Thus, you get to choose. Do you want to get majority of the tooling that Stripe, that exists at Stripe and Stripe has built that is built on top of Survey? Or do you want to take a shortcut and metaprogramming thing into existence? There are cases where metaprogramming is the right approach, but with a value proposition at Stripe of all the tools, increasingly, we use metaprogramming less and less. And thus, the tools that you as a developer at Stripe will most commonly see are things like autocomplete, where you start typing in methods and you see all the methods with the same name. As you're finished typing the method, it will also tell you the signature of this method, where it will tell you which, how many arguments does it take and what types are you expected to pass there. Actually, if you were to go to survey.run, you can see a demo that shows experience, which is very similar how it works at Stripe, with a big difference that Cerebetotrans works on a single file, while at Stripe, we're working on tens of thousands of files and not hundreds of thousands of files. Tell me more about the tooling that you're able to build around a gradually type-checked language that is not possible with untyped code. How much infrastructure and support can you give to developers that are working with Sorbet that they might not have had with Ruby? The biggest guarantee that we can provide that's it's much harder to provide to Ruby, if even possible, is guarantees in terms of confidence. For example, let's say that you were looking to rename a method. If you're naming a method that's uh, happened to have a very common name, arguably be very hard in a big Python code base or a big Ruby code base or a very big Anyan type language code base to rename this method because from all the call sites, you'll need to figure out could it be calling the actual method that you want to rename or does it happen to be calling a name with a similar a method with a similar name that defines somewhere else. At Stripe, because we have 
a very huge typing percentage. We're recently reached 90% typedness. Our IDE tool can tell you exactly all the locations where the method is used in all the typed code, and also tell you all the locations where the method with a similar name is used in untyped code, which brings people into willing to type it even more in that, that they can verify whether this is the same method or not. This is an example of a thing that was close to impossible at Stride before survey and now is pretty commonly done with the tooling that we have. I'd like to know how this occurs in, or how this is useful in practice. Maybe I think one way to exemplify it is just how different teams interact with one another and, and how you can provide guarantees in the inter-team communication. And I know Stripe has a number of kind of big monoliths. Uh, there's sev- several big monoliths. There's several. There's a lot of a lot of microservices as well. But it's sort of a you know a set of monoliths and then a set of microservices kind of code base. It's not like entirely monolithic or entirely you know these tiny services. But in any case, you have teams that are interacting with each other's services. You might have infrastructure teams that are going to make an update to you know, something relating to gRPC or, or, or some kind of method definition where they have to go in and change the code of a bunch of other teams. But in any case, you have teams working on each other's code. And so I just want to understand how type checking can help to improve communications and guarantees between teams. Let me give you an illustration of a problem that used to be very common at Stripe and now rarely exists of ever. There is a common class of Stripe that's very pervasive. Let's call it user. And Stripe code base happens to have a lot of local variables or method arguments that are called user. Some of them mean that you should be passing the actual database class that represents the user objects from our internal. Others mean that you should be passing the user ID, but the author of the method didn't write the underscore ID because they were trying to be short. So, Before survey at Stripe, it was frequently hard to understand as a user of a method, should I be passing the object to the argument that's called user or the string that represents the object ID into it? And thus, there was a lot of confusion where people will need to go read the code and frequently go deep into a lot of forwarders to see how the thing is used. And the reverse was also true. Sometimes infrastructure team found that the method was misused and it was very hard for them to find all the places that misused it. And thus they grew some methods that were actually agnostic and they can work with either user object or the user as a string. And this was creating even more confusion because then it's very hard to state invariance. It's very hard to tell whether you're handled all the cases. Today in the world where this method will have a signature it will be explicit in the code that this is either a user ID or user object itself, and will be checked both statically before you commit your code and in production. We will verify that this promise of there's only users IDs or only the users the object are getting passed here will be held true in both tests and production. Makes sense. Now I'd like to talk about the actual development of Sorbet. And I think it's worth talking through a bit like what Sorbet actually is. You corrected me before the show started that this is not a compiler. And when when I think of a system like TypeScript, I, I think of a compiler. I think of a, 
a language that is built on top of JavaScript that compiles down to JavaScript. So if it's not a compiler, what is it? What is Sorbet? So if you were to think about Sorbet, it's more like hack, the original hack, in a sense that it's, its output is error messages. It runs over your code base, and it starts complaining about your code, saying that the way you're using your code makes Sorbet uncomfortable in a sense that it cannot verify that some of the usages or some of our expressions of your code are safe. Uh, in some cases, it will say that uh, you're calling a method that seems to have a tie point will be suggest a corrected method name. In some cases, it will tell you that you're passing a wrong argument. But in the end, its output is error messages rather than some kind of executable file or some kind of a different program written in a different language that it transformed it into. So thus, we call it a type checker rather than compiler, in a sense that we don't actually have the compilation steps inside it. We don't have the last steps that are necessary to implement the compiler because we didn't need to build them. Got it. So the code, would you call it maybe a, a code scanner or a or I guess you just call it a, a type checker? What like what are the different components of the type checking? process, program? The tool as a whole, we call a type checker. Internally, public name is called Sorbet. Internally, it's still called Ruby Typer, in that we try to call things what they are at Stripe rather than the code names. And Sorbet is the public name because there are more than one external type checker for Ruby. Internal structure has a bunch of phases. The very early phase is a parser, where we take the string representation of Ruby as read from disk and we convert them to a tree-like representation that's most commonly used to represent programs. It's called abstract syntax tree. Then this abstract syntax tree goes through a bunch of transformations. Most notably, the very first ones are syntactic transformations that transform it to a simpler language and allow us to implement a much smaller subset of Ruby that will be more uniform. For example, Ruby has prefix and postfix if, similar prefix and postfix while, and a bunch of these. So we're transforming the Ruby language to be simpler to reason for future passes of Sorbet so that so we can handle it more uniformly and in more systematic way. Later, it followed by something that we call Namer that discovers all the definitions that exist in your code base and registers them in something that we call global state. After this, it's followed by Resolver that finds all usages of those definitions all references to classes, all references to module, all references to constants. And finally, Resolver is followed by something that we call Inferencer that runs type inference on your program and figures out types of every local variable, type of every expression in your program, and how do they work well together and starts raising errors if they don't. Does it make sense? It does. But what about the fact that at the end of it, the code has types in it. I mean, the types, those are not going to be proper Ruby code, right? Like, isn't that just just extraneous code that you have to remove before you actually execute the Ruby code? So the survey types are actually proper Ruby code. They're a DSL written on top of Ruby, where above a method you say sig, and inside the curlies you say that this method has specific parameters and return type. And the entire thing is valid Ruby. It's evaluated in runtime, both in test time and in production. And it, the knowledge that you wrote in the signature is used in runtime to 
wrap the method via a wrapper that will enforce types on the way in and out so that it will check that your arguments are the things that you promised people will use you with and that your result is the thing that you promised the thing that you will return. But again, it's still valid Ruby. Survey does not use something like non-Ruby syntax or comments for coding types. And this is what allows us to validate them in production. Got it. So I could just run my Sorbet code as normal Ruby code without running it through the type checking system. Precisely. And you'll get some of the value even without the static type checker because you'll have the runtime enforcement. Cool. Now, the process of, you know, what you, what you discussed there, you basically treat, look at the string representation of Ruby, build an AST, and then do a lot of work on top of that AST. That sounds like a lot of work to build, even just the construction of the AST part. Is there anything you can take off the shelf there? Like if, like just talking about building the, the abstract syntax tree for Ruby, is that all stuff you had to write from scratch? Actually, no. So for taking Ruby source code and parsing into AST, we reused parser that was written by Charlie Summerwell at GitHub for his typed Ruby code base that itself was a conversion of the white quarks Ruby parser from Ruby into C++. That said, unfortunately, it ended up being not as fast as we wanted for us. So, But this is something that we've solved pretty easily by introducing a bunch of layers of caching, where we can verify that between the prior run of survey and the new run of survey, the file has not changed, and thus be able to reuse the very initial parsed AST from it. Well, that's pretty clever. So you're basically saying the developer experience, the first time I run my abstract syntax tree generation thing, it's going to be kind of slow, but in future instances, it's going to be faster because you're going to be able to cache and reuse most of that abstract syntax tree. Exactly. And that's also the trick that we use for standard library. Survey internally has burned in definition for Ruby standard library, which you don't need to pass to it. And as survey starts, it has it. There is one cache that's part of the survey binary itself that contains the cache representation of standard definition of like integer, string, and such. And because we don't need to reparse them on every start, we can start as fast as single digit milliseconds. Whereas if we were to parse them, it will take a substantial amount of time. As I was going through the sorbet work, I noticed you use a project from Google called Absail. I, I hadn't seen this before. What is Absail? So Absail is the project that Google open sourced where they're sharing some of the common built-in blocks that Google uses most for C++ and Python. We use it for a very specific class called inline vector, with survey being a type checker for a big code base of Stripe, the biggest constraints that will define our performance properties is memory and cache locality. Inline vector is an implementation of vector for C++ where you can ask it that if a vector is small enough and the value is small enough, you specify it as an argument for the type. Rather than having the vector be allocated on heap, it will be allocated in line in the data structure itself. 
and thus substantially improve cache locality. We use this data structure a lot in Survey for pretty much everything that's of importance, where we profile what are the common sizes for, let's say, how many arguments does your vector does your method have normally, and thus the vector, the data structure that stores your argument list will be tuned that for common arguments length, the arguments will be stored in line, thus substantially improving cache locality. That's what we originally introduced upsell for to get to be able to use this data structure. Similar data structures exist in other code bases, such as the Facebook's common library. Folly also has similar one. It's a pretty common trick, but we decided at the time to use upsell one for no particular preferential reason there other than we just ended up choosing that one. Since we've introduced some other helper methods from upsale, but the biggest reason why we introduced it originally was the inline vector. Okay, so the steps that Sorbet takes after you make the abstract syntax tree, what's the next step after that? The next step is Namer. Namer. What is Namer doing? It discovers all the definitions. It finds all of your classes and all the methods that defined in them. And what does it do with that information? It just registers them so that we can later find them. We don't yet know the relationship between them, but we know that they at least exist. Okay. And then what's the next step after that? The next step is Resolver, where we find all the references to those classes and methods, and we establish the relationships between them. For example, at this point, we will know the class hierarchy, or which class inherits the other class, or which interfaces does it implement, or which signature does your method have. But in order to be able to do this, we need to know what is integer at all. And thus, let's say namer will register a notion of there is such a thing as integer, and the resolver will find all references to the word integer after register have discovered that there is such a thing as integer. And what comes after the resolver phase? After the resolver, the main phase is the inference phase, which knowing now all the use sites and all the definitions can verify that all the actual code is correctly type checkable. It will run a type inference algorithm over your program, which is control flow dependent. And thus the majority of complexity of it is the fact that we convert your methods into dependency graphs, into the data graph. And we'll run through this graph in order to verify that however you were to pass variables around, all the ways you will pass them to other methods or call methods on them would uh, succeed based on the promises that you gave us from types. Okay, so the dependency graph, is that where you're going to start to find actual type errors in the code because the dependencies are going to be mismatched? Each of those phases discovers some kind of errors. For example, the resolver can find that you have a reference to something that we haven't been able to find, and thus it doesn't exist from service mm. perspective. But the most common errors and most interesting errors are found by the inferencer, where it can say, for example, that this method was expected to return an integer, and one of the many branches forgets to return a value, and thus it returns the default value of nil. Got it. And that is after you build that dependency graph between the different methods? Exactly. Very cool. And so this is all written in C++, is that right? The static component is written in C++. The runtime component is written in Ruby. And what's the reasoning behind that language choice? That's a great question. So 
As you know, Stripe is pretty opinionated about the language choice. And C++ is not one of the languages which is supported at Stripe. In order to use C++ for this project, we went through a process at Stripe called design review, and review more specifically, where we were presenting why do we believe this project is special compared to all other projects at Stripe. And the gist of it is that from prior experiences of building type checkers, I've built Dottie that's slated to become Scala 3, and from prior experiences of Paul Tarjan at Facebook, the thing that defines performance of a type checker is memory locality. If you think about this, majority of type checkers are just building a huge hash map that's representation of all of your program, and they're verifying whether all the things there work together correctly when you'll be looking them up, and as you pass them around, that they can, like, like when you're calling a method foo and we want to verify whether you use foo correctly, we need to look, look up the method foo first. And here you have this hash map-like axis. So the thing that ends up defining the type checker performance rather than being just CPU utilization is most commonly whether you need to go into your RAM to look up this definition of the method. If it's there is a multiple tens and dozens difference between various cache levels. If something is in your registers, access is pretty instantaneous. If something is in your caches, the access will be much slower. If it's in your memory, the access will be pretty ridiculously slower. So by using language such as C++, where we get to control which things are located together in memory, we get to control our performance properties. Does it make sense? It does. I didn't actually know that type checking infrastructure could be so resource intensive. If you think about this, majority of the type checkers are non-linear on your code base in a, in a sense that they need to verify some environments that can be quadratic on some pieces. For example, it's very common when you're implementing checking whether the method overrides another method correctly that this check will need to scan all of your superclasses and see which methods are overridden. This operation is worst case quadratic by the size of your code base. And thus, you need to find the good algorithms will be able to support it. Some pieces of surveys, such as control flow dependency, are potentially cubic in the worst case. And thus, it's very important for us to make sure that the multiplier before the cubic function is small enough that users don't run it for the functions that they will commonly write. I know how to write a function in survey that will take a few tens of thousand lines of code that will take longer than a lifetime to type check, but then people rarely write those long time, long functions, and the easiest solution is write smaller functions. Wait, I'm sorry. Did you say that people actually do write these kinds of code snippets that cause sorbet to basically time out? People rarely write the snippets themselves, but they can write a program that will generate such a snippet. And Stripe <laughs> increasingly uses a lot of code gen, and if you were to write a method that was generated by a computer that has very complex control flow, and the method effectively encodes a state machine, where we'll now need to consider all the states. And in some cases, the state explosion can be substantial. Surveys current algorithm is cubic in this regards, whereas things like hack actually have a fixed point computation there. And thus, they don't have a guarantee when they will converge, if ever. So we've learned from them, but still, similar to how many other type checkers are affected by this, so survey also is. If I write some sorbet code that has some non-typed variables, 
are you giving me any guarantees around the untyped variables or are those simply areas of the code where I may be liable to have have problems in the code because I have not done the work to actually type that code? Survey will work hard to try to infer the type of your variable. So for example, if you were to assign something that has known types, such as you were right to, let's say, A equals 1, we will know from there that A is an integer. Similarly, if you were to call a method that, whose type we know, from there we will know the value that, that you assign to a variable. But there are cases where we will know, won't know the type of the variable, and things like IDE will allow you to discover this where if you were to hover over this variable at Stripe in the IDE, it will tell you that the variable is untyped. And similarly, some features such as autocomplete will not work in this variable. Tell me about the process of testing Sorbet. Actually, Nelson has written an awesome blog post about this, but the gist is Sorbet has a bunch of internal representations between phases, such as after the parser will have the parse tree after namer will have this global stage which contains list of definitions after resolver the tree will become resolved survey has a way to pre-print all of those intermediate states and the way we test survey is by verifying on a huge test suit that the intermediate states have not changed or if they have changed the code review will include reviewing the changes that happened to them to make sure that all of them were intentional and all of them are not regressions. What else have you done to improve the speed of Sorbet over time? So Sorbet internally has a lot of parallelism. The very early phases, the parser, the early desugaring phases are massively parallel per file, and they're also cached per file. And thus, if you were to modify a single file in our repo, we won't actually need to reparse the entire code base. We will only need to reparse that file. And similarly, we only need to do transformation to this file. Namer is the only phase that's fully single-threaded because we need to discover the definitions and we're populating global state, which mutations of which, if we're done concurrently, would be unsafe. We currently actually have a project in Flight that assesses ability to parallelize this, but this will introduce substantially more complexity into Namer. Today, it's warranted because Stripe has grown substantially that this has become a problem, while in the early days of Survey, more than two years ago, having a sequential Namer was not a problem. Inferencer sim- similarly has been parallel from pretty much day one, in that by the time Type Inference runs, all the knowledge about the code base has been discovered and it's immutable. And thus the algorithm is just as parallel sharding across all files while keeping a single copy of the global state and only reading through it. And all of those invariants are maintained by the C++ type system where we can verify ownership with unique pointers and uh, C++ constness, which is transitive, allows to verify us that Things like global states, if you have a constant reference for it, cannot be mutated in a way which will be threat unsafe. Before you worked on Sorbet, you spent some time working on Scala. Can you tell me what you learned from your time working on Scala that was applicable to your work on Sorbet? Before joining Stripe to work on Sorbet, I was working together with Martin Adursky on the project called Dottie that's today going to be called Scala 3. 
And together with Martin, I wrote a PhD thesis on pretty much how do you write a fast and maintainable compiler. So my area of research ended up being very closely related to the project of survey, and thus has benefited substantially in that a lot of things that were done in survey are substantially inspired about the solutions and the problems that we've seen in Scala. Stripe itself uses some Scala, and it also uses some Go. What are the places where Stripe uses those other backend languages, languages that are not Ruby? Recently, we've also seen some other languages be commonly used at Stripe, such as Python and Java. And all of those languages have their own pretty specific place at Stripe. Scala is most commonly used for big data processing, things like Hadoop and Spark. If you were to do any kind of big data computation at Stripe, the recommendation is use Scala for it. Go with Stripe is used for things that are need to handle a lot of connections, such as we have a Veneur, which is an open source project, that's, which is a project that we open source that implements observability system of Stripe, which forwards metrics at Stripe. Go is really good about handling a lot of connections and things like Ruby with the global interpreter lock are much worse in this regard. Python as Stripe is used for machine learning with, uh, so far, PyTorch and TensorFlow. And Java is used for some servicey things. All of those languages have specific error of usages. We're trying to have a very opinionated position so that we can get, rip the benefits of Synergy by using the same language to use similar problems. Stripe is not the only company that has used Sorbet. As you've communicated with other companies, how does their usage of, of Sorbet compare to how it's used at Stripe? That's a great question. Before Sorbet was open sourced, we actually had a closed beta where more than 40 companies uh, got access to Sorbet and we open sourced it after the experience of those companies became pretty good. We're verifying that Sorbet would be useful not only at Stripe, but also in other companies. And this was the condition that we put before ourselves as a precondition for open source. Since then, we know of hundreds of companies who have adopted Survey, most notably big players such as Shopify, Coinbase, and many others. Hiroc recently wrote a blog post about their experience adopting Survey. Things that we found that are different in the way how they use Survey are many of them disable the runtime enforcement. Runtime enforcement has some runtime overhead. At Stripe, we have a metric that controls it. And if it was to be higher than 7%, my phone will ring and I'll get paged. In some companies paying cost of 7% of performance might be considered too high for the guarantees additionally provided by a runtime type system, given that you already have some substantial guarantees provided statically. Another difference is many of those companies use Rails. And I want to give a call out for the Survey Rails project built by Chan Zuckerberg Initiative that makes it much easier to adopt Survey in the Rails code base. All right. Well, just to close off, what aspects of Sorbet are you working on now? What are your projections for the future of the project? At Stripe, at this point, Sorbet is considered a success. The areas where there is active work in survey area are further improvements in the IDE, where we want to support more features and support them faster and being able to provide faster iterative iteration on our code base, in particular as our code base grows. 
in the core survey, a majority of the ongoing work is about making sure it continues scaling together with our code base, where there are some areas such as Namer, which at the time made sense to write in a single threaded way, but now as our code base has grown, we want to make them faster. At this point at Stripe, survey is a success and thus the project is mostly on maintenance mode and uh, we're working on to deliver value elsewhere. Similarly, the adoption of survey is around 90%, so we're not actively pushing it anymore. Actually, now one, one more question, just because I'm curious. What have you moved on to focusing on within Stripe now that your work on Sorbet is somewhat complete? My work personally has changed substantially since then. Since then, I became a pillar tech lead. So I'm helping the entire wider team of forgers so people have alignment with the wider org. But the biggest project that I had since Sorbet is selective test execution, where we've intercepting file reads on the libc level in our tests to see which files can be impacted by a diff that you're sending into our ci and that's which tests conservatively need to be rerun this has substantially sped up our ci time and brought us to the lowest ci time in years and saved a lot of engineer waiting time on ci and also a lot of money on just ci infrastructure Awesome. Well, Dimitri, thank you for coming on the show. It's been really great talking to you. Thank you, Jeff, for hosting this podcast. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Have a great day. 